Oi, 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 oi. IGA oi. is shopping oi. nights. Oi. IGA, oi. where the price oi. is right. Seaford North oi. IGA oi. for your groceries oi. and liquor. Oi. IGA oi. Express, oi. there's nothing oi. quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I am so lucky to be able to broadcast to you live on Radio Karam from this wonderful, wonderful place. My guest this evening is Tanya Davidge, a design advocate, architect, writer and executive director at Open House Melbourne. She is passionate about communicating the importance of good design to public audiences in a way that encourages people to think more deeply about the issues that shape our cities. Tanya is also the co-founder of the architectural research practice, Oopla, and a passionate public advocate for public space. As the president of the Public Space Advocacy Group, Citizens for Melbourne, Tanya led the successful Our City, Our Square campaign, opposing the demolition of Federation Square's Yarra building and its replacement with an Apple store. Tanya has extensive experience across architecture, urban design and strategic design. She has a PhD from the University of Melbourne focused on the development of creative strategies for engaging public audiences with architecture and the public realm and a Master's in Advanced Architectural Design from Columbia University in New York. As always, you can join the conversation tonight and send us any questions into the studio on 0493 213 831. And if you miss those numbers, just hit the Contact Us button on Instagram at Radio Architecture. Tanya, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm really great and it's a beautiful warm day down here as well and we're in the nice cool studio and I'm really looking forward to this chat. It's really, this program is very much the highlight of, of my Wednesday nights. Ah, lovely. The first question I like to ask all my guests is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Oh my gosh. Now I do wish I had thought about that a bit harder. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think one of the, my most oh, – okay. Um, Festival Plaza in Adelaide. Uh, there was an amazing uh, public artist and public artwork in that plaza. It was um, a kind of a series of gridded slanted columns of different heights. They were colourful. They were bright. Um, I can't think of the artist's name – um, and then there was also a fountain kind of associated with it. It was fantastic. It's gone now, which is such kind of it made me very, very sad when it went. Um, but that plaza used to be programmed full of kind of like different festivals in Adelaide. And um, I remember going to lots and lots of different ones, Greek festival, um, all kinds of different things in my youth and playing hide and seek with my sisters. Um, kind of between the blocks and, you know, paddling in the fountain. How old were you when, when that memory was of the of the beautiful installation? Um, I don't know. It would have been kind of various ages and various points in time. Um, yeah, but definitely quite young and, you know, probably all throughout high uh, primary school and maybe even high school. That's interesting. That kind of reminds me of some of the Oopla projects that you've done with Christine Phillips with the colourful dots with the, with the colourful uh, tactiles and those sort of public installations to encourage people to think about the urban realm differently. Yeah, there's definitely something um, about play and kind of playful architecture and playful engagement that is really... Um, A thread for you. Yeah, absolutely. Something I, I really like to think about and something Christine and I both kind of really resonate with. So it's... um. Yeah, and I think it's a way of engaging, you know, a different audience, a broader audience, a kind of a um, – I suppose everybody connects through play, right? It's not just simply about kind of architectural expertise or kind of some kind of, I don't know, high concept or whatever. It's actually a very, very simple thing that connects people and brings people together to think about. I mean, in, in those cases, space, right? Like in design. 
and yeah. even essential for human well-being and, and to thrive and develop it, starting to learn from other disciplines like neuroscience, how important play is for everybody's development and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I say, I think in terms of, you know, like there's a lot of things that play does. There's many different types and forms of play. Um, you know, there's social play, there's kind of solitary play, there's kind of more intellectual forms of play. Um, so it works across many levels, it works across many disciplines um, and kind of activities. Uh, and I think like at its core, there's a level of creativity to like you know is creativity creative creativity is absolutely at the core of play and you know if you're if you think about design or you're interested in design or you're interested in the kind of creativity that works with design then you're not that far from play or playing um just some forms of play are maybe seen as more serious than oh, other I, forms absolutely and on this program i have different weekly conversations with the different guests and really a different topic based on their area of interest and one of them quite early on episode four, I think, was about parkour and yeah. play in the city, play in the urban and public realm and the right to having that, that access to play. And, it, and in my mind, all these different topics, that's all architecture. That's all still architecture. Oh, absolutely. And the really interesting thing, uh, I suppose, about parkour from my perspective, because I'm quite interested in that too, and my kids have kind of done classes in it. I'm not going to hurt myself doing it, but I think it's quite great to watch. I think the really interesting thing about parkour is it, um, and play in the city is it helps you think about the city in a different way. So what else can the city be? Like if we look at the city, most people think it's fixed because it's made of these really immobile um, different bits and pieces like bricks, concrete, like bitumen, um, all these things that take you know a lot of energy, a long time to put in place and also last for a long time, right? But when we play in the city or when you kind of think about something like parkour in the city, you think about how you can use these things differently. Like they're not just bollards or gutters or curbs or handrails. They are – they're made different and it's kind of – it gives you a different perspective into how we might use the city differently, how we might use it better. Um, it kind of also is a moment of, I suppose, like enchantment or kind of magic in the city as well. Um, to see people perform in that way. So, yeah. That, that whimsy and joy is so special and should really be held on in, in both serious professions and serious design work and yeah. in those who experience it. Well, Absolutely. We hope. need more of it all the time, everywhere. <laughs> I wonder how would you define architecture? Me define architecture? I don't know. Um, I feel it's kind of interesting. I'm an architect, but I also feel sometimes a long way from a really traditional, like, I'm not a traditional practitioner of architecture by no stretch of the imagination. I mean, architecture for me at its heart is about people and place. So it's not so much about bricks and mortar, but it's a way, it's about the way I suppose the bricks and mortar relate to people and make something, I suppose, more than the sum of its parts. So it's not just about the constituent bits, but it's about, um, you know, neighbourhoods and community and, and all of those different things that start to kind of knit together and form part of a much larger picture. How did you come to the profession first? Why uh, architecture? Oh, you know, like you pro kind of the same way lots of people come to it. I was interested in maths and I was kind of artistic. Um, so I thought architecture would be a really great thing. Um, and, you know, like I've had multiple people say that, but that's actually kind of the way I came to it. Um, it was, you know, that high school thing of like, where do I want to be? I did a hilarious internship uh, in year 10 in an architect's office. It was so boring. I thought I was going to die. Um, and I did a lot of dye line printing from memory or that ammonia printing. Um, yeah, you won't know anything about that. <laughs> See, uh, listeners. Quite, quite stinky. And I am kind of, um, you know, I suppose ageing myself right now. Um, but... Uh, it was actually really early on in the years of CAD and they popped me on this computer and I just made all these weird lines everywhere and, you know, I don't know. I didn't give it away necessarily in year 10. <laughs> if I got a dollar for every time a uh, very established practitioner told me that I don't know what dye line printing is, that's so funny. So stinky. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad to have real printers now. Oh, God, yeah. Or, you know, like trying not to use paper as much as possible. So that boring week work experience didn't didn't scare you off and you? No, because I think I really love um, 
Like I love buildings, I love design, I love cities. Actually, cities is probably my first love. Um, my parents really loved travelling um, when I was little, so, you know, we didn't do it necessarily very often, but we would do big trips and my parents loved loved architecture. We lived in Chicago for a year when I was in high school and we saw all the Frank Lloyd Wright stuff. We travelled around Europe, I think, when I was nine or ten. And, you know, so all the Gaudi stuff and the Leaning Tower of Pisa and the Colosseum. And so um, the kind of – that kind of diversity of um, space and the different ways those pieces of um, architecture can make you feel, I think, was probably ingrained from a really young age. Um, yeah. And very fortunately nurtured as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. was, that was very much my experience as well. Very, very lucky to be encouraged to continue developing architecture as a passion. Mm, absolutely. But architecture is for, for everyone, really, and everyone should be able to have those moments and have those experiences. And one of the amazing ways into architecture is the Melbourne Open House Weekend that, that's run and your work at Melbourne Open House. And we've we mentioned Open House in the program before, but I think this is the best opportunity for you to share with the listeners what is Melbourne Open House. Yeah. So what we do every year, I mean, I suppose we do year-round programming, but our signature event is the Open House Melbourne Weekend. Uh, it's the last weekend in July every year and we open up um, hundreds, almost hundreds of um, buildings, places and spaces. Um, that are really unique to Melbourne um, that you might not be able to see normally or sometimes you can see them normally but you might not feel comfortable stepping across the threshold. So what we do is create an open invitation to kind of experience um, some of the most amazing and incredible and unique and interesting and new and contemporary and old and wonderful um, buildings and places and spaces in the city Um, and it's really, really great thing to be part of it's a lovely thing to do I've learnt so much about the city in the kind of eight months that I've been there even more than I um, thought I would there's some truly unusual and exceptional spaces in our city um, and you don't normally get to see them or maybe you don't normally feel comfortable going into them so it's wonderful to kind of be able to present those to a public audience I think we had oh 186 or 100 over 180 different Um, things in our program this year across that there were over 700 kind of events and tours and exhibitions and bits and pieces that were associated with it um jam-packed oh yeah and some of the fantastic things like I went to see the Ukrainian church in North Melbourne and the priest there was fantastic and it's not a space I would necessarily step into but it's a modernist um kind of brutalist church um and then inside it's packed full of kind of um gold things (laughs) and so it's really well worth a visit it's really interesting um I got to see some really fantastic public housing that's part of the big housing build um that Homes Vic are rolling out designed by some really great architects Habel and um Habel's was one of them and then um architectus uh worked on a different set so they were fantastic and really important um, pieces of work that are being, uh, you know, that's being done, and you know, wonderful to see how design, um, I think, can contribute to kind of, you know, really important social con- uh, conversations we're having around housing. Um, at the moment, um, what else was great? There's some great old stuff, and I don't know. It was just fun. It was such a fun weekend, <laughs> and also a chance to look at private houses that, it, of course, just homes. There, they're, they're closed. You can't just wander, wander into somebody's house, but it's, it's a very uh, unique opportunity to to get some, you know, inspiration in case anyone's looking. Uh, oh, absolutely. Built. I mean, I think um, I'm always really impressed with the people who will open up their homes. <laughs> they're very brave. I know, absolutely. Um, we do ticket the. Um, there's bookings associated with the homes just because you know like it's limited capacity and they're much smaller but it's always lovely to have um really lovely houses on our program and we often work with archi team to help kind of curate tours of them so that's really like it's a nice relationship archi team are really great too so that's good do you have a favorite building in melbourne oh so many favorite buildings in melbourne top um five. top five okay um I do like the Shrine of Remembrance. Um, I think that's a really 
important building for, you know, a huge amount of reasons. There's a great historical legacy there and I think the, um, the kind of renovation uh, and the kind of addition to the shrine, the contemporary work that's been done on it is fantastic um, and wonderful and really respectful of its kind of history and context while, like, keeping its relevance um, into the future, which is a really, you know, kind of key thing, I think, to think about when you're working on a heritage building. Um, They're building about memory and continuing memory. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of like the idea of living memory as well. Um, Like, I'm not particularly interested in war, but I do think... um, you know, there are formative moments in our history and then how, they make, how they're made manifest in terms or how they become kind of, you know, how they come to life in terms of built form and fabric is really quite an interesting and fascinating thing. Um, so, yeah, obviously Fed Square is um, kind of probably one of my favourites for a whole pile of reasons um, and that's, that's hilarious. I do love and I love kind of public spaces like I love um, a lot of the public realm of the city and a lot of it's not necessarily, um, you know, not necessarily what we'd think of as designed. But I love the fact, for example, that you don't need a permit to protest in the streets of the city of Melbourne. You know, like I love these spaces where we can think about kind of democratic participation that's not structured around like I suppose voting or formal processes but is actually spatial Mm-hmm. Um, and really important to the way we function as a society. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure I can think of tons more, but <laughs> they're the, the ones that come to mind. They're, they're your absolute faves. What What can we look forward to on the uh, Open House Melbourne program for, for next year? Is there any any exciting changes or anything in, in the works? You're oh, able well, to we share don't with us? know yet. Okay, here's, my, here's the bit where I go, oh, my God, our expressions of interest are open at the moment. So if you want to pop anything on the program, you've got until the 1st of March next year. Um, you can just head to like our website. Um, the expressions of interest is big and bold on the banner. You just click on it. All the information's there. Our program manager, Pierre, has done a fantastic job of like communicating anything you could possibly need to know. Um, you know, and we're looking for great projects. Uh, the theme for this year is rediscover, re slash discover your city. So it's a bit about reconnecting with old favourites but discovering new places and those new places might be old or they might be new um, or they might be just, you know, about finding out about the stories behind the architecture. There's It's also 50 years of the Victorian Heritage Register next year. So if you've oh. got a bit of a, you know, Victorian Heritage Registered building, um, don't hesitate to pop it on the program. Um, yeah, and so once the expressions of interest close, we go through a process. We have a building council they help us kind of curate the program. Um, unfortunately, we're, it's becoming quite popular and we can't actually service everybody, But we, so we have to kind of curate um, the program. But then we'll know more. So you'll have to have me back. <laughs> we'd love to. We'd absolutely love to. And I hope that there will be more examples of exciting Australian architecture from the city of Kingston, the area where we're in now, where we're oh, yeah. broadcasting live from. It'd be some fabulous additions to the program. Yeah. I went this year to the Kingston Town Hall and heard the Wurlitzer concert organ be played and um, that modernist town hall by Bates Smart McCutcheon. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. We're we're actually chatting to the city of Kingston at the moment. We're really hoping there'll be some great stuff on the program. Um, down here, it's actually really interesting, I think, in terms of Kingston's really interesting and I'm just learning about all the councils that are kind of, that come on for the weekend and it's so interesting because they've all got different um, characters. They all feel different. Um, you know, the people are all interested in different things um, and it's wonderful to kind of, understand all the different and the kind of unique um I suppose yeah like you know the kind of and the different forms of you know what what buildings they all love or what buildings they want to see on the program um it's a great way to get to know the city and coming down to Kingston was fantastic because they were like Kingston is Melbourne it's like you know, every on every demographic, it's within one percentage point or something of 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 Melbourne's you know like demographic, and it's a really interesting thing to think about. I think, especially considering that you know the conversation at a state level is really moving to look at the middle ring of suburbia, and there will be, um, I think, there's huge aspiration for really working out how we can. Um, 
you know, better connect people, provide better services in this in these areas, but also maintain the kind of feeling and the the passion, you know, the kind of the the character of the neighbourhoods that people, you know, that is the reason that people live in these places or live, you know, where they live. So that's kind of like trying to find that right balance between understanding that, you know, we're a growing city, we can't go out forever, especially not in terms of the climate crisis and all of the other, you know, issues that go along with it. And also like how we better connect people. Like there's all kinds of reports out at the moment um, about social cohesion being really at its, you know, at its lowest ebb. It's been at for a while and this idea that we need to really help people connect to each other. And I think design the built environment cities like how we plan cities has a huge role huge huge role in actually making better places for everybody so good conversation to be part of that's so interesting i never i've never heard that demographic data before that that um kingston's almost a perfect petri dish oh i love to it represent it was so city. good like it was so yeah so interesting and then you know like we went out to kind of um hobson's bay and they've kind of got this amazing wetlands that they want to concentrate on so there's a really different feeling there we've been chatting to Wyndham, um which is also kind of like another another different different feeling borendara is kind of um you know interested in looking at its kind of civic buildings and its heritage um we were down in geelong doing programming um about a month ago and really interesting to see how that city the city is evolving and its civic precincts growing in terms of some really quite amazing contemporary buildings they want to be a design city well they are so they're a unesco um yeah they're a unesco design city um and so yeah really interesting to see how that is um impacting the built form and fabric of the city a really brave ambition in commissioning incredible public architecture in Geelong. Yeah, and that idea of being a design city or a UNESCO design city is actually um, is bound up, like it's actually about looking at the city in a creative way. Um, so it's kind of part of the, ple- you know, as a design city, you kind of almost pledge, there's a mandate there to kind of really think about the city uh, in a creative way and from a design perspective. So, um, And to maintain that obligation. Yeah. Well, I'd love to see some of the city councils listed getting on board with that ambition as well. Yeah, it's good. And continuing to commission brave public architecture. Yeah, it's fantastic. And there's such great architect, no, there's such great contemporary architects in Melbourne, and you know we've got a really good legacy of um, fantastic and you know architecture that tests the boundaries. I think of different bits and pieces. And, and starts to question what it means to produce Australian architecture and really engage with that very complicated question. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, what is it? What does it mean? What is a contemporary form of expression? Like, you know, I don't know. What what does Australian architecture look like? We've got a great range to choose from in Melbourne. (laughs) Entirely entirely living the question on that one. Yeah. But I want to ask about one of your favourite projects and that's Fed Square and the campaign for the citizens of Melbourne. Can you remind listeners, we have to, we've had a conversation with Michael Smith on this program before yeah. and we've, we've briefly talked about um, the, the campaign to save Fed Square, but can you, can you remind us what was happening, what was the atmosphere and what galvanised this group to start? Yeah, so I think it was four or five days before Christmas in, must have been 2017, the state government kind of dropped the announcement that they were going to um, replace the Yarra building in Fed Square, which is the kind of one that stands alone closest to the Yarra. Um, has the Curie Heritage Trust in Which has it. just been refurbished and reopened. Yeah, I know. I'm so looking forward to seeing that. I can't wait. Um, anyway, so they were going to pop an Apple store there. They were going to uh, knock that down, put an Apple store in its place. Um, and it had kind of been mooted about a year before. I think Michael Smith wrote something on it, but most of us were like, that will never happen. That's so silly. Who would have thought? It, it was too ridiculous to believe, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, it happened. And it was kind of funny because... Um, Linda Cheng from Architecture AU emailed me and she's like, you wrote this thing about Fed Square East um, and about um, the fact that Fed Square is actually governed by a charter um, in terms of its governance, so like, which talks about its public space um, and, you know, what that public space means to the people of Victoria. Um, she said, oh, so will you write something about this Apple store? And I was like, oh, my God like four days before Christmas and but I was really quite mad 
So I emailed her and I said, oh, it's four days before Christmas. Mm, everybody's coming to my house. Maybe not. Um, and then I woke up the next morning. I was still really angry. And so I emailed her. I said, you'll have it by the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Writing as catharsis. <laughs> yeah. So I smashed this thing out. Um, and I kind of maybe said, we may have to chain ourselves to something at the end of it. Anywho, luckily it didn't come to that. Um, and... Um, a guy called Rowan Story got us all together. Tall Story on Instagram. Yes. For anybody who doesn't know him, you should follow him. He's fantastic. Um, because, you know, he was interested in seeing – there's, you know, different people had written different bits and pieces about it. So he got us all together and we formed the Citizens for Melbourne. Um, and I suppose we ran the Our City, Our Square campaign. Um, and it was really interesting because Fed Square is everybody's but nobody's. So it was um, – not like a typical neighbourhood campaign, which often revolves around, you know, like the pub or something or a kind of a community, a piece of community infrastructure that's really very neighbourhood based and people can have a really deep connection to. Um, Fed Square's, you know, much younger for, for one re- one thing. Um, it's also kind of everybody's, but... Um, what do you mean when you say everybody's? Well, you know, it's built for the people of Victoria. Yeah. Or, you know, and it was actually built to commemorate Federation. So, you know, like it's kind of got an Australian flavour at its heart or at its inception at least at it, in its ambition yeah yeah and um but in some respects like it's not like something you go to once a week it's not your local you know yeah. so how do you build connection to it now i had a quite a deep connection to it because it's where christine and i popped on our first exhibition oh. uh in the atrium called ads for architecture so that was great um and i as I mentioned, have a real passion for public space and the public realm and the idea that um, a corporate entity such as Apple would be in the square, in the form that it was, um, in a new building. And we all know that, you know, Apple's branding is very much about design um, and the design of its places and space, its buildings uh, included in that. Um, So would actually fundamentally change the character and nature of the square. Uh, And so... This was something I thought, well, you know, probably we do have to do something about um, and who's going to do it. Um, Rowan was like, well, you guys, us guys, um, and not also, not only guys, but anyway, um, and women. Uh, guys universal. Yeah, guys and gals. Um, and uh, so we kind of went, okay, off we go. And so, yes. So we ran this campaign. It consisted of multiple moments. Um, it was really an incredible way to understand, I suppose, um, how you advocate for something, um, especially when something um, is as ephemeral as public space. So we all love going to the public park. We all know it's important. We all know that, you know, wandering up and down on the beach is really important to Australian culture. It's kind of, you know, like the, the fact that the beach is free is a fundamental part of our identity, you know, like our parks. It's the main public space out here on the Long Beach. Yeah. Absolutely. Similar, right? So, um, but when you start to talk about kind of public plazas or kind of like those more nuanced public spaces, like, you know, why are they important? I don't, you know, I only go there once a year or maybe maybe I'd like to get my phone fixed. It's much more easy, be much more convenient for me if the, you know, it was right next to Flinders Street Station. But um, so I suppose we ran this public, almost public advocacy and public education campaign around why it was important, why Apple would change the nature of the square um, and, you know, um, and why Fed Square was important to Victorians and Melbournians as a public space, as a kind of, um, as our premier civic space, I suppose, as well. So there's kind of an element of democracy there. You know, we all know Fed Square's long history of, you know, protest, but public participation in that square, watching the soccer and the tennis and all and the other bits and pieces. Yep. And then community celebrations. There's kind of a, a calendar of year-long community consul- um, celebrations, sorry. And then then the Apple Store would form the backdrop to all of those pieces in a place where branding and kind of, you know, that kind of identity is very minimal and on purpose. Like it's, it's purposely been kept... Um, to a minimum because it's about showcasing um, What's community. Yeah. yeah, the community essentially. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting thing to do. That was a super <laughs> powerful argument for me. I remember sitting in the audience of the BMW Theatre for the debate that happened on this topic because it was really bubbling up to be 
really hugely important conversation. And one of the images that come up came up on the screen, and forgive me, I don't remember which speaker brought it up, perhaps it was actually yourself, Tanya, yeah. where you demonstrated how having an Apple store in the background and their branding would be so ostentatious and would co-opt any other event and cause. And it's this powerful image of like Apple being slapped on top of very uh, Australian ceremony and ritual and events that we would be horrified to see co-opted. And that visual just, I think, personally really took me along on the journey. But I'm yep. sure that was the same in the experience of many others. Yep. I think that was my slide. Um, I mean, one of my most powerful uh, memory, apart from the fact that Christine and I ran this lovely exhibition there, um, powerful memories or multiple memories of Fed Square is the Tandarum that used to open the, um, the Melbourne Festival. So the Tandarum is a meeting of the five tribes of the Kulin Nation, the five clans of the Kulin Nation, um, and it's incredibly moving. Like, it's so powerful. So there's kind of a smoking ceremony at the start and there's kind of dances and singing and chanting by each of the different um, uh, tribes of the Kulin Nation and you can see the kind of differences in their identities and um, the crowd is amazing because we're all just watching absolutely wrapped and it gives me chills just thinking about being in that space it's usually freezing cold and fed square at that time of year um but it's beautiful and it's and until um i think until the melbourne festival it was part of the it became part of the opening of the melbourne festival again it hadn't been um it hadn't happened in melbourne for over 100 years wow yeah so um, it's really interesting. I've sin since met people who have been part of like organising the first one and face painting the kids and um, yeah, like it's it's that, you know, it's one of those moments that Fed Square highlights, absolutely highlights. It's what it's, you know, it's what it's there for. It's what it's there to do. It's to bring us together around kind of our collective culture and history in lots of different ways um, throughout the year. It is an incredible space just in, in hearing your story and your memories. So many of my own have been coming back and thinking how important it is. And, and some people will say, oh, Fed Square's Melbourne's ugliest building or that it's somehow controversial. I don't in any way subscribe to that, but I have wondered that perhaps one of its biggest wins is how much it got people talking about architecture. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, you know, like aesthetically if we're just going to look at it a kind of at that level of like what it looks like um like it might, it's not necessarily my favorite um favorite kind of style of architecture um but i what style would you call it actually uh i'd say it's deconstructivist deconstructivist just to use a big word um yes yeah um but yes very and actually one of the few examples of built, de of built deconstructivist architecture because at that point in time the economy was very bad worldwide and so there was a lot of paper architecture, so a lot of people drawing these amazing buildings but not a huge amount of them getting built. So it's, you know, significant um, piece of work uh, for that um, on its own regardless of all the other things it does. But that's for me, is just one part of it. For me, um, you know, yeah, it's about people as, you know, as I said before, it's about people and place. It's about something that brings the community together. It's about, um, you know, it, it actually feels like a very, very Melbourne. I know it's kind of hilarious because one of the criticisms when it was designed and, and built was that it's like these international architects and no, no, no. But it feels incredibly Melbourne. Like it's, yeah, you it know, really like does. it's kind of like awkward and weird and uncomfortable and kind of hard to work with sometimes, but people love it. And some it's bits like of our it. weather. As <laughs> exemplified by the recent weather we've had. <laughs> so true. And some moments are really, really beautiful and uh -huh. are really lovely. And others are like, whoa. What were they thinking? Or how did they even get that up there? Yeah. And how does that work? I have, we had this um, fantastic guy who was kind of um, really interested in the campaign at the start, a guy called Simon Thulis. And he um, he's in events. He still works in events. And he was part of the kind of event team really, really early on before the square opened. And he talks about two moments in its history that he was, you know, that were really powerful for him and he was part of. Um, the first one was... Um, actually before they opened, they had a kind of an open day when it was under construction 
and um, they were getting slammed in the media left, right and centre. Like, you know, I don't know, like this state was spending a huge amount of money and um, – They hadn't know. built it yet and it was being dragged already. Well, it was being – you know, it was being built but it was very controversial kind of right from the start. Um, it was one of Jeff Kennett's major projects and um, they were getting just slammed every day, left, right and centre and they thought, well, we'll open this up and what they did is they opened it up and they put um, – they put somebody who knew something about all the different bits at all the different stations. So they might have had, you know, like an engineer or somebody who was working on the facade to like, you know, the architect, you know, like it was it was all kinds of people and they just let people in to, you know, safely, obviously, um, let people in to talk and understand. And Simon says that the shift in sentiment, like you could feel the change in sentiment once people became part of the journey of wow. the construction of the building and they kind of understood more about it. They were brought inside and and shown and people who were passionate about it because they were working on it talked to them and, you know, like they got to connect. And so it was this really lovely moment. And the other moment he talks about is I think the Iraq war protests and Fed Square hadn't been completely finished. I think the, um, that corner shard that – is it Taxi, the restaurant's in – um, was not quite complete and you can access all the buildings underground except for that one. Um, so, and he was stuck on the top of that one and people were trying to climb it <laughs> during these protests. And he was kind of calling very polite. He's this, this gorgeous man. He was calling very politely, you know, like, please just get down, don't hurt yourselves or something like that. And anyway, but, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, you could see it's feel its effect and feel its importance. Uh, in terms of the broader city and the broader community, um, like right from the beginning. The power of that t- communication and taking people on the journey with you. Yeah, critical. Rather than doing projects completely in secret. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, believing that people, um, you know, you can't change everybody's minds. People still think that Fed Square is an eyesore, but, you know, but then, but also people understand it in more complex ways than you would expect. Um, and connect to it in more complex ways than you would expect. And that's important and it's great. It's absolutely also really important to never insult the intelligence of the public because oh. they know. They right. know. Absolutely. And, you know, like Victoria's fantastic. Like incredibly – people that are just incredibly passionate about design and understand and get it, you know, like really get it. And we can see that through our programming, the kind of the people who – you know, go to the talks and ask the questions, um, you know, really, really interesting um, conversations that we have between all kinds of different people who are just really, you know, really love the fact that Melbourne's such a great city to live in in terms of design. Do you have a favourite story or a favourite moment throughout that campaign for Fed Square? Oh, I don't know. There were some hilarious ones. Oh, my God. Oh, tell us. Um... Well, you know, it was kind of partially terrifying because, you know, you have to say things in the media. So that was kind of interesting. Um, And, you know, like I kind of cared about it very deeply. So wanted to make sure everything was right. But um, we did do this hilarious thing where we helped facilitate uh, almost a flash mob at Fed Square. This public space performance group (laughs) came down from... Queensland as part of an exhibition at the design hub actually that Christine and I were part of um, as well and uh, they dressed up in fruit costumes Uh, so we had you know banana blueberries I think I can't even remember and an apple and we all chased apple around Fed Square shouting juice the apple juice juice (laughs) the apple so that's something I didn't think I would be doing when I studied architecture uh, it was kind of an interesting thing <laughs> and to you, do. You didn't and think the campaign hilarious. would hinge on that either. No, well, you know, but we made the Channel 7 News in Melbourne and South Australia. So, I mm, don't know. Sounds like a win. Slow news day in some places maybe, but it was very hilarious. Um, the news, the camera crews interviewed the, app, the, the fruit afterwards and it was very funny. Um, but it was, you know, but that was really fun and... Um, just I suppose the people that we met throughout the process, the amazing kind of passionate people you meet that really deeply care about the city and, you know, what it is and what it becomes and what it is for people, um, that's wonderful. And then the group's efforts were recognised by the Institute of Architects as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got um, a lovely Bait Smart Award for advocacy, which was the first time the Bait Smart Award was given for advocacy. So we kind of um, got something 
um, yeah, special there, which felt really felt really lovely. Um, and I think um, you know it was a really interesting thing to be part of something that was quite large. I mean, we started there was um, nine of us. We started. And we were mostly by ourselves, but we built this incredible kind of, um, I suppose, connection or audience um, so that when uh, FedSquare, the management company that no longer exists, um, applied to demolish, put in a permit to demolish the Yarra building, um, we managed to mobilise over 3,000 people to object um, to the permit. So from kind of not very much to to take about a year and a half, but um, to about 3,000 people. And, of course, the the permit was denied by Heritage Victoria. And then Apple pulled out um, and it was kind of interesting because we were going through the heritage process at the time, Um, but we, in the end, um, yeah. And in the end, FedSquare was heritage listed, but we won before the heritage listing, so it was quite fascinating. Where, where were you when you received the news that, that you'd won, that Apple pulled out? Oh, my God, I can't it, even remember. The whole scheme was crushed. Is that hilarious? I should, not, I should remember, but I can't remember. Oh, maybe, we were, maybe it was during the Heritage Council. I don't know. I can't remember for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no. But I did own the um, – I had this beautiful drawing that Peter Davidson had done um, and he lent the image to our campaign um, to pop on our T-shirts and our merchandise. Um, so lots of us have bags and I've still got, I don't know how many tote bags with that on it. Um, but I ended up buying the, when we won, I, um, I went down and bought the, the work on paper. And so now I own it and it feels great. That's very special. Yeah, it's very, lovely. Very powerful and special connection to that building. And we are so grateful for your advocacy, Tanya. So th- thank you so much. Well, it took a lot of us for you and the team to <laughs> yeah, yeah. really championing. No, they're a fantastic group of people, and we still um, kind of catch up. We caught up a couple of couple of weeks ago at the M Pavilion. Um, one of us, James Lef- Lesh, was talking about I think housing and and heritage, and so we all just kind of went down and had a drink together. It was lovely. A wonderful reunion. Yeah, I, I want to ask about what was it like running for the city of Melbourne? What was it like running for council? Oh, that was kind of um, that was interesting. Um, it was. It was good, but it was kind of a bit not like I expected because we ran during COVID. Um, So all the kind of stuff that I was actually really interested in, like getting out and meeting people and chatting to people and understanding kind of their connection to the city, what they wanted to see happen, um, didn't really happen, uh, you know, quite in the way that I had envisaged because everything was online. Um, But it was quite funny. I got interested in politics because – because of the Fed Square campaign, there was uh, the Melbourne Uni run a Pathways to Politics program. If any of uh, you women out there are interested in a Pathway to Politics, their programming, their program is fantastic, um, and it's open to you know anyone with aspirations. Is and, that a free program? Uh, yes. So I thought, well, I'll apply to this because there might be some politicians, state level politicians that I can like, you know, advocate and say, don't put an Apple store at Fed Square there, uh, ended up doing that programming and then, um, uh, you know, the further step for that was probably, I suppose, running for council uh, under Sally Capp's ticket. I was too far down the ticket so I didn't get in but um, it was an interesting process. How does it work when you run on somebody, like a team's ticket in that way? Oh, gosh. So it's a bit tricky. Um, gosh, I'm not even sure I can remember. I was, I was, all, acro- I was all across it at one point in time but um, – what basically happens is uh, the Lord Mayor and the Deputy Lord Mayor uh, run on a ticket and so you either get in or you don't. Um, so they run and it's kind of a separate thing. So you vote for the Lord Mayor and Deputy Lord Mayor and then they have different teams who run on their tickets and um, I think there was six of us that ran on Sally Cap's ticket um, and um, – their vote still works like the old um, federal parliament, which is too complicated to go into, but needless to say it should probably change. Is this unique to the um, city of Melbourne? Yeah. This sounds different to what yeah, yeah, we no, experience in other councils. Local councils. It's absolutely different to local council. Yeah, and so then the votes get um, kind of uh, apportioned depending on how the um, ticket apportions its votes. So you can get on, in on very few votes – um, if you work out how to do your preferences correctly, so it's still that kind of old system. Um, made me really interesting, interested in 
systems of democracy, you know, and how they mm. could be more fairly run or better run. Um, but local council is just a kind of a small step, but um, it's interesting. I probably follow state and federal level politics a lot more closely now than I used to. <laughs> How, how did you find that experience? Is it something you'd recommend for architects to be getting into politics? Oh, look, it's a difficult thing. Like I think politicians don't have an easy gig. Um, however, there are lots in there that shouldn't be. And, you know, and as an architect, you have a lot of incredible skills and a lot of capacity to um, make change. And I think we need we need better politicians, we need more women, we need more minorities, we need more, like, we need more people with knowledge and expertise outside mm. of politics, in politics, um, because Absolutely. we need, you know, like, we need good representation, like, that's what democracy is about. Um, so, yeah. So, if we don't have good representation, um, then, you know, we get what we're given. So... I would encourage people to kind of put their hands up and try to change things. Get amongst it, listeners, get get in there, especially those with technical and professional knowledge that can help influence decisions. Because yeah. there's people making decisions about the built environment with no background in it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really interesting, so, to hear Philip Tallis talk from, um, you know, he was a councillor at the City of Sydney. Um, he said, you know, like he'd go into those council meetings and as an architect – he could talk to almost every single item on that council meeting ticket, you know, be it bike lanes, public space, um, roads, roads and rates and rubbish, um, all the bits, like all the bits, because we have an incredible kind of breadth of um, general skill set. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, and you know, like he. I mean, I think his time on council was tiring because um, I think there was extra. They put off the City of Sydney elections because of COVID. So there was an extra kind of year or so in there. But, I mean, you know, really rewarding for him. And, uh, you know, he likes to make a difference. So it's good. And amazing to have architects in that position. I've asked this question before of a guest on the program and I wonder what answer you might have. Do you think we'll ever have a federal government architect? Um, I hope so. There was a Minister for Cities at one point and I actually think that's a really fantastic role um, and so I would hope that that would come back. I think there was maybe some talk about it. Maybe we need to advocate around that. I would love to see a federal government architect the same way as we have a chief medical officer, as we have federal scientists, I believe, of these professions that are critical to keeping our society going mm. are represented in federal, federal parliament. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, you know, the way we build our cities, the design of our cities, like it affects everybody every day. You basically step outside and you're in it, you know. Like we don't think about it very much, but that's like that is the reality. And, you know, bad design or or kind of poor thinking around planning, um, you know, has huge effects and huge repercussions on so many people. So, yeah. And there's never, ever a saving. It is always worse. It is always more expensive. It's always a do-over, a redo, or your taxpayer is just completely unsatisfied with what they've been provided with. Absolutely. And, you know, you know when you're in a fantastic place, you know. You know what it feels like. It feels great. Like it's really good, you know, with all the right amenity, the kind of access to kind of public infrastructure and public transport and the right kind of bike lanes and, you know, all the bits that go into it, um, you know, put it when, they, when they're put together well, it's amazing. And, I mean, it's one of the reasons Melbourne's not without its issues, but it is one of the reasons that Melbourne is, you know, one of the most livable cities in the world is that we're actually, we actually really care um, about design and design culture and kind of the thinking that goes behind planning our cities and stuff like that. What's your number one hope for Melbourne? What's, it, what's a vision that you personally hold close um, I have a real interest in housing, um, particularly social and public housing. And so I really hope that we get on top of that issue. It's going to take years. It's a really, really complicated space to be in and to work in. Um, so I really admire the people who are in it. Um, and I really hope that we can solve it because um, housing is a basic human right 
and I really believe that we all have, we all need um, to live and be housed with a certain level of dignity. Yeah. And safety, mm-hmm. which is all inherent in dignity. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you see the change that having safe and secure housing makes to people's lives, um, like it's really powerful, you know, like not having to think about where you're going to sleep the night enables you to do all kinds of other things in your life. I mean, I was chatting to um, Jeanette Large, who's the CEO of WPI, which is a women's property initiative. They house, um, they house women primarily and they know from their cohort, the cohort that they house, that a lot of women, they house a lot of women with children, a lot of women, um, once they have safe and secure housing, uh, like, you know, take up lots of education opportunities, you know, they have a much easier pathway into work. Um, there's so many things, there's so many social benefits that actually just providing housing for people brings. Um, and Support it's really a woman, transform a whole community, I believe yeah. the, the saying oh, really? is in geography. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. No, but yes, but yes, absolutely. Um, and just, you know, support people to kind of actually really reach, you know, give up people the opportunity to kind of actually just, you know, reach potential to get educated. It's it's critical. What are some housing projects or schemes that uh, you, you think are really on the right track or that you're getting excited about? Um, it's kind of a, it's it's a little bit tricky to tell um, at the moment, um, just because all of these things are really new. And as we all know, anything to do with the built environment, um, you know, it takes while, a while for people to form connection to place, and you know, to kind of understand like how things work. Um, I haven't actually been out to it yet. I can't wait to go. But um, we had this great panel discussion around. Um, some housing out at Epping that Haven Haven Home Safe as a community housing provider are providing, um, and MGS Architects designed them. But the wonderful part of the conversation was really about understanding how these new um, apartments are kind of ground up. They're a bit they're not you know they're part of actually a whole new big development, but they're the first part, and how the developer has worked. Um, with uh, MGS and Haven Home Safe to kind of really um, deliver them. But not only that, um, Haven Home Safe have done some really amazing thinking around how you build community mm. from the ground up and how um, you build community and accessible touch points to kind of create community. Um, you they know. work with a village well to do placemaking, don't yeah. they? Yeah, so that we had um, someone from village well talk about it too. And just the kind of level of care that you – you know, it, it was kind of a microcosm in understanding the level of care it takes to build community. And that's kind of the level of care that we actually need to take across the entire city, across everything, across all of our projects. It's like you can just kind of see that exemplified. Um, and then we had this amazing woman who's a tenant in that space talk about how it had transformed her life, essentially, um, moving to that housing. Um, and she was an incredible advocate. Uh, for the space um, and when you listen to somebody with lived experience tell you what it means to them and you also realise that, you know, those people are not that far, you know, when you say those people, it's like... Could be anyone well, tomorrow. Well, no, absolutely. You're not, your life, my life experience is not that far necessarily from hers. Like there's, it's a sliding doors scenario, yeah. right? Like it's, it's... Most people are one bad day away. Yeah, absolutely. One, one, one single crisis. Yeah. And so you think, well, you know, what would I want for my mum? What would I want for my aunties? What would I want for my friends? You know, what is the level of support we need to support, we need to provide as a society? And quite frankly, housing is it. Yeah. <laughs> At the very base level. Base level of the Maslow's hierarchy of yeah. needs pyramid right there. Shelter. For, for all that social dividend and social payback later. Mm. I'm really interested though in how critical the need for doing placemaking work early in the design process and early in the consultation process is becoming like they've really been able to identify that mm. as pivotal to the success of those housing developments? Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's pivotal to the success of a lot of things because just because we provide the spaces doesn't mean that it's going to work. And you can kind of see that, I suppose, if we use Fed Square as an example of that, there was kind of governance structures at Fed Square and you could see that you know, under different CEOs, there were different aspirations. And and what had happened over time is the KPIs had changed um, to kind of 
you know, to the to the point at which it got to the kind of well, Fed Square needs to fund itself. Well, we need the revenue from the events that we, yeah, we need the revenue. Pavement needs to profit. Absolutely, and it's like, well, maybe, maybe some things need to be provided um, to enable certain things to happen. And the kind of if we draw the boundary around, you know, do we have to find all the funding from within the boundaries of the site? Or can we think about things in more collective ways that enable better things to happen? And, you know, housing is an example of that. Um, Community is an example of that. But I suppose the question was going towards, you know, thinking about placemaking. And so maybe that's kind of understanding that place is not just the bricks and mortar. It's actually about the kind of stewardship and the custodianship, ongoing stewardship and ongoing custodianship of that place and what it means to the people who live there. I wonder if whether your definition is any different to mine. I suspect it might be quite similar that for me, a space is the bricks and mortar. It's the physical envelope. Sometimes it's just the building we yeah. hang over, hand over. But as soon as people and community and culture and activation come in, it becomes a place. Yeah. So spa- place is a space with meaning, right? So, yeah. And it's the way we connect. So that's a very uh, geographer kind of. Very geographer. Human geographer kind of take and I quite like human geographers. They're quite interesting people. We love human geography in this program. We've, we've had a PhD candidate in, in human geography on. Oh, and fantastic. I find I often come back to all these interconnected and intersecting themes that underpin what is great architecture and what is really meaningful architecture. Mm. That We have to be drawing in all these disciplines like human geography and physical geography the other month we had we had a whole conversation on hydrology and groundwater surface water interaction so oh, all these things come together for what is architecture and what is our public life together yeah absolutely i mean and it's really nice to kind of like often design or you know like if we put up pictures of architecture people kind of understand that and then it's a great way to kind of you know show people different bits and pieces so when we started the talk on the haven home safe housing we kind of had um, cameron from mgs give a talk and show people what that space looked like and felt like because we couldn't be there it was a bit far away and also the tenants had moved in so you know like it's sometimes it's a bit tricky to tour things right um and so but then you know but then the conversation went in this you know, it wasn't tangential, but that looking at the design and the thought that had gone into design then opened up a conversation around, like, what does it take to make community? Like, what do we need? Um, what are the important bits that are fixed and what are the important bits that are not fixed? What's the, the hard infrastructure and the soft infrastructure? Like, um, and so you can have these incredible conversations around, like, bits of design that you, you know, that unpack all the complexity. Um, and that's kind of the bit I love. Awesome. (laughs) Before I ask my last question, I just want to say that I'm so glad you were able to join me on the program this evening because you and towards the end of the year, the 28th broadcast so far, we brought together so many themes and stories from past guests and past collaborators Mm. that I hope and listeners go back and if they need to do a bit of catching up over the summer holidays and past conversations that uh, it starts to come a bit more full circle someone has just managed to sneak in a question just got a text message okay three minutes texter thank you very much what should be the future of development of fed square in your opinion oh look i don't know Uh, it's quite interesting i mean for me like a lot of those kind of places come um to life through programming. I mean, one of the reasons I love the M Pavilion, for example, whether I necessarily like all the pavilions on it in an architectural sense is because of the way it's programmed. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of key. Like I'd love to see, you know, and I think Fed Square is like, I've had some chats with um, the people in there now and MAPCO, um, you know, really thinking about kind of enabling community programming. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the things that kind of felt a little bit to the wayside in previous years and there's a real impetus, I think, to kind of move back to understanding um, that we need to put community in that place in all of its different forms and celebrate it. Um, so I suppose, yeah, it's actually not about a design thing, right? It's not yeah. about physical development. It's actually about like... Use. Yeah, and anchoring that as a really key and important space for community. Um, in people's minds and in people's hearts. I think we really, really need that in in this world at the moment to find ways to come together and find the common ground. Absolutely. And and find a a collective experience of of healing. Yeah. 
I'll, I'll ask my last question because I, I am really curious in, in your answer. And what it is, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? I don't know. People give me hope. Oh my God. It's kind of hilarious. People are really like, you know, sometimes they can be really, you know, whatever. But mostly, like, um, I get to meet really wonderful, passionate people that really care deeply about the city. And that gives me hope because that's what's going to make change, right? Is like, you know, how much we care at its heart. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on the program, Tanya. Ah, Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy.